You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. Hello, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. I had dinner with my dad last week, and as we were waiting for the check, I asked him to tell me a story that he's told me a bunch of times, but which I can never get over. It's the story of how he was drafted for the Vietnam War. And yes, I know this is now two episodes in a row that I've talked about Vietnam in the intro, but I can't help it. I have been reading this book about Vietnam, and I can't stop thinking about how much it explains so many things that never made sense to me before. Last time I talked about how Vietnam was the reason a lot of young men joined cults in the 60s and 70s. And while my dad's draft story doesn't explain a big social phenomenon like that, it does help me understand something about myself. Which is that, for a long time, I wore a giant peace necklace around my neck. I got it at Spencer's Gifts when I was 16, and I wore it every day of my life, literally every day, for the next 16 years. It was often the first thing people noticed about me, which is understandable because it really is huge, like three inches in diameter, made out of thick sterling silver. I got this necklace after the Columbine shootings, which happened on my birthday. And like everyone, I was horrified by that story. But it felt particularly harrowing because, at the time, there was a story going around my high school that one of my classmates had been planning a similar attack. Thankfully, our school officials got wind of it, and they had this guy arrested just in the nick of time, so it didn't happen. But it was so eerie watching the Columbine story unfold on the news and imagining that those same TV cameras almost ended up in the hallways of my school. And a few days later, I was at the mall with some friends and I saw this peace necklace at Spencer's. And I just remember having this visceral feeling. I am going to buy that, I'm going to put it on, and I'm never going to take it off. These days, I don't wear the peace necklace every day, though I keep the pendant on my keychain. But for the 16 years I did wear it, one of the questions people used to ask me was, are you a pacifist? And I would always hesitate before I answered, because in my mind, pacifists were people who took much braver stands than wearing a necklace. Pacifists went to protests and sometimes to jail. And by that metric, I was certainly not a pacifist, and I didn't even know anyone who was a pacifist. Or so I thought, until my dad told me his Vietnam story for the first time. Because unlike a lot of men in his generation who did not go to Vietnam, my dad has never felt guilty that he didn't serve. And that's because his dad, my grandfather, was a pacifist. And my grandfather had become a pacifist because he'd watched two of his older brothers go to jail for being conscientious objectors during World War II. My grandfather was too young to be drafted for that war, but later in life he became one of the leaders of the Congregationalist Church in his town, and he was a vocal proponent of racial integration when most of his community was against it, which he viewed, I think, as an extension of the family tradition of pacifism. So when my dad's draft number came up, he felt like going to Vietnam would have been kind of a betrayal of his dad and his uncles. 
Now, my dad also knows and is always careful to say that he was very privileged to have access to the systems that helped a lot of young men avoid military service during the draft. But he also remembers that moment of being drafted as a moment of deep certainty, of realizing this family stands for peace. That's who we are. I had never thought about the connection between that moment and my own impulse at Spencer's gifts until we were talking at dinner the other night. And I think it all clicked for me, in part because on the show this week, we have two stories about people who realize that something powerful inside of them was cultivated generations earlier. First, we're going to hear from musician Hubby Jenkins. This black guy came up to me and he's like, boy, I never seen a black man play bluegrass before. And I was like, oh, I have so much, <laughs> so much to tell you. <laughs> like, this isn't bluegrass. And like, this is our music. And like, it belongs to us. And then from playwright, scholar, and professor, Dr. Jokey McElroy. And I never, ever even thought of touching one of those guns. People would come in, they would be so afraid I was going to toddle over and play with the guns or try to touch it. I knew that the guns weren't toys. And I knew the guns were for our protection. From WALTFM and PRX, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman. We'll be right back. Odelia Rubin was a producer on Family Ghosts back in the early days. And one day, she invited her friend Hubby Jenkins into the studio to talk about the inspirations for his music. Hubby has played with the Carolina Chocolate Drops and the Rhiannon Giddens Band. He's been nominated for a Grammy. And he brought his banjo to the studio that day and talked with Odelia about the role his family plays in his music. A couple years ago, I went down to Reedsville, North Carolina, to interview some family members. So my, my grandmother died when my mom was a kid, and then my grandfather died when I was a kid. I never really got to know them that well. So I wanted to interview my great-aunt, who is very old, and then I wanted to interview friends of my grandparents. And in between interviews, I would just sit and like play music, waiting for people to show up. And at some point, one of my grandfather's friends shows up, and he sees me playing banjo. He's like, oh, you play the banjo? That's pretty good. I'm like, why don't you go play, that, play me some of that piano over there? And there was always a piano in my great-aunt's house that no one ever played, and I never knew why they had it. And I said, I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know how to play piano at all. And he's like, really? Like, everyone on your granddaddy's side played the piano. Like, you guys were the piano-playing family. I was like, really? Like, and so I, I got it on tape. Yeah, all of them play Alice and, and, and Bean and my mama and, 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 and June was phenomenal. Something I never knew. So, like, somewhere in my DNA, it didn't matter that I didn't hear it or get to it. Like, it was in me the whole time anyway. So I guess I wanted to start with asking you how you got into playing folk music. Yeah, sure. So... When I was a kid, I grew up playing saxophone. So I played saxophone, alto sax from f age of five until high school. 
and then like rebelled against my folks and started playing cello and bass and classical music. Um, and then when I finished high school, I was like, I want to play music. I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm going to take a year off of uh, from college. Um, and in that year, I got really into country blues, like going backwards from like Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan into that. And so when I got into country blues, I had a few friends who were getting into old-time music and traditional blues music. And our main connection then was the New York folk scene. That's how we felt validated in playing all this southern music, right? Um, so we'd hang out in Washington Square Park. Yeah. One of my friends, Farrell Foster, Foster, started a show on McDougal Street, which is where a lot of the old folkies hung out, like John Baez, Karen Dalton, Bob Dylan. And so that was kind of like my first real connection to it. And it's really funny because, like, my family's from North Carolina. And as a kid, I would go down to North Carolina and be hot and resentful of the South and hate it. <laughs> um, and just sit in the living room and watch MTV all day and not go out. And so I never really encountered any Southern music or folk music while I was there, except for going to church, of course. My great aunt made me go to church. Um, but yeah, my first connection is New York and Washington Square Park. Tell me about busking, because I know you traveled a lot. And is, was it during that time period, traveled a lot and did a lot of busking? Yeah, you know, there's a romantic view of old time that involves handkerchiefs and overalls and, um, I guess, plaid and <laughs> um, boots and hitchhiking. And that was kind of really inspired by, like, Woody Guthrie and that kind of stuff. So... For a period of time, I would just busk in the subway in Washington Square Park on Ludlow Street, on McDougal Street. I just busked everywhere. I paid my rent busking. Um, and then that slowly turned into a cycle of getting a job that I hated, saving a bunch of money, quitting, going traveling for a little bit, running out of money, coming back, <laughs> and busking, getting a crappy job. Um, but busking is really where like, I learned to practice. I learned to perform in a lot of ways. You know, like when you're playing a song and no one cares, like you can feel it very quickly. So learning how to shift gears. I got really into medleys, busking. Hmm. Um, and I also had terrible stage fright. So a lot of busking uh, helped with that. That makes sense because you're playing, playing to a group of stra- like a bunch of strangers and people kind of cycle through. And So your music is roots music and you also like your family is from this area in the south that plays this music, but you weren't connected to that. What did finding and playing folk music feel like to you? When I first started playing country blues, it was more of like a singer-songwriter kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And thinking of, you know, people like Robert Johnson or Skip James or whatever as artists. You know, a lot of times people think of blues as like, what's the word I'm looking for? Not archaic, but like, uh, just not arts. Like, there's no craft to it. You know, there's like, oh, they just, it's one, four, five. You know, like, but like they wrote these songs, composed these songs, if you will. And so hearing like someone like Skip James, it just felt powerful. It's like, oh, one person with a guitar can be more powerful than, I don't know, Led Zeppelin and all their stacks or whatever. And then at some point I was reading a book and I learned that the banjo was a black instrument, that the banjo was a slave instrument, and that the creation of American music like, first happened on plantations. Um, and that opened all that music up for me in a totally different way. Where like before I'd, I didn't even think about trying to learn banjo. I was like, that's some weird white stuff. I don't know what's going on there. And just learning that fact made it super accessible. Um, and then I got my first banjo, and it opened up this whole world. I'm like, hell yeah, 
American music is black music. Like, I'm all about it. Like, I'm going to represent. Um, and I'm going to go to these spaces that feel like white spaces and, and proclaim it loudly. It made me learn more about my history um, and, like, our history in this country and how all of that is within the music, if that makes sense. Yeah. I like the idea that you hear American history through the music and in in the idea of you going to spaces. I'm, I, I'm just imagining it must be a weird feeling playing music that you know is black music and you know the audience might not know that. Yeah, you know, like, when I... One of, my, one of the things that inspired me was playing guitar in Union Square. And I was just getting into Robert Johnson and, like, playing slide. And this black guy came up to me, and he's like, boy, I never seen a black man play bluegrass before. And I was like, oh, I have so much, <laughs> so much to tell you. <laughs> like, this isn't bluegrass, and, like, this is our music, and, like, it belongs to us, and blah, blah, blah. And so when I first started starting to play festivals and starting to play more, show shows instead of just coffee houses and corners and stuff. Um, that became very important to, like, talk about that. And then when I joined Carolina Chocolate Drops, like, they were also on the same mission. And, like, playing at old-time festivals and saying, like, hey, the banjo is a black instrument. And people would be like, I had no idea. I've been playing the banjo for 50 years, had no idea. Or they would say, there's no way. My granddaddy played the banjo. Like, it can't be. So, yeah, it is a, it's, like, just that fact and like the visceral reaction people get from seeing black people play the banjo and play this music becomes historical and relevant in its own way. And you just have to, yeah, teach people that. Understanding the things that are happening today are rooted back then, you know? So if you play like a minstrel song, if you play like a blackface song that has racist lyrics about, you know, niggers have razors and all this other stuff, then you understand the mentality of police and people who support police and police brutality. And why, like, these ideals, like, well, the creation of black people as being dangerous and super strong and fast and hypersexualized and all these other things are rooted in this time period and are integrated into our country and continue. Same with any blues song about prisons. Same with any blues songs about black love. Same, you know what I mean? Like, so on and so forth. When you do shows, do you have a lot of explain? Like, do you tailor your explanation to the audience, and how does that change? Do I tailor my explanation within reason? Uh, probably not. <laughs> uh, you know, there are varying degrees of 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 anger that I feel when I'm performing. You know, like during Ferguson and all that kind of stuff. There was a lot of anger in my explanations and. For a while, I was reading Choose Your Own Adventure books on stage, which I'm a huge fan of Choose Your Own Adventure books, and I would open up the show like, okay, here are misconceptions about black people created right after slavery. Here's a song about it. Um, okay, and then I would just start reading this book. You're a medieval knight. Like, do we go left or do we go right? People go, what? Hands for left? Hands for right? Okay, we're going to go right right after this song. Now, black people were oppressed through the prison system as well <laughs> and just bouncing back and forth. And that, that was a way of disarming people where, A, they're involved, so they're just in it, and then, B, they're having fun and taking in kind of this intense look at racial history without putting up any barriers. And I think that it enhances the music to think about it that way. Yeah. Some people can get offended by it, but some people are just like, whoa, I didn't know that. And every time I hear Run, Johnny, Run, I really got to think about it, you know? And 
Yeah. And obviously, like, people, I'm not saying that uh, someone who enjoys old-time music and doesn't know their history is, like, a racist or something like that, but it's it's just, like, you could learn more, you know, like... Uh, I don't know, I really like eggs, but if you put a little salt in it, like it tastes better, you know? <laughs> I grew up in Brooklyn, um, Bed-Stuy, then Clinton Hill. My mom, Cassandra, had me with my dad. My dad split, and then she met my, my other mom, Paula, and they both raised me. And they split when I was a kid. Yeah, and so my mom, Cassandra, is the one whose family's from North Carolina. Mm-hmm who all came up in, like, the 50s and 60s. She grew up in Queens in the Rockaways. And my other mom's from Puerto Rico. So my, yeah, my life was kind of split between that, those two things, like Southern New York, black stuff, and, uh, <laughs> and, like, Puerto Rican island goodness and Yankee ball games and all that kind of stuff. How did it affect the music that you chose? I think with Cassandra, she has a really um, eclectic taste in music. So, like, I would hear everything in the house from... She was really into The Pretenders, but she was also really into Shirley Caesar. She was into... um, She also taught me how to two-step, which I think was very important. Um, She was like, everyone should know how to two-step. I have a very good memory of my mom, like, showing me in the kitchen while she was cooking how to keep a beat. And with Paula, it was, like, lots of, like, salsa music and conga drums in the house all the time and I think that affected me in a different way that I didn't see until later on of just having this appreciation for like Afro influences and understanding history and, and that kind of stuff. Both of my parents were fairly political, like like active and like protesting and stuff like that. Paula has worked in harm reduction my whole life. So when I was a kid it was like she did a lot of street outreach during like the AIDS epidemic in the nineties and stuff and so that was like a big influence just seeing her deal with that stuff and working with people who needed it. I've been thinking about um, like Black Panther, the movie and stuff like that. <laughs> and I hear it, yeah. when I went to go see the movie, I think it was like the second time I went to go see, no, the first time I went to go see it. And then like everyone had the shikis on and all this stuff. And I'm like, did they buy this for the movie? Are they selling them somewhere in the lobby? Like, what's what's happening? And what does it mean? Like, what the hell does it mean? And, you know, like, we've been cut off from our history. Like, part of slavery was, like, eliminating our history. I just got, like, this DNA kit thing that I'm kind of excited to do. Like, I'm going to get back in a package, like, where I've come from. You know, I can only go so far, right, before I, I there's nothing. And so... You have a whole society, a whole culture, a whole group of people who have this destruction of our past. And then the second part of our past is just altered, (laughs) like altered to be favorable to someone else and like altered to continue oppression and altered to change perspectives of us and et cetera. So it becomes a very important thing to me and very powerful to wear a dashiki and represent that and to play banjo and tell people this is where it comes from and this is what it's about and why things have been changed and why it's important to unchange it, you know? Like that festival, Shikori Hills, like the first time I played at that festival, it was like, I didn't know that festivals existed. I didn't know that fiddle competitions existed, like City Boy, New York City, every day, pizza, bagels, the whole thing. And uh, went down there and my mom was like so worried. She's like, oh, don't go to the South, like... 
it's, it's terrible down there. Like, be careful, yada, yada, yada. I was like, I'll be fine. And I played this festival. People liked it. And I met some dudes. I think they're Muslim from Nashville. A bunch of white guys playing country music by a fire, drinking, and I'm hanging out with them all night. And then all of a sudden, just nigger jokes everywhere. Looking right at me, like, hubby, you're going to like this one. Like, derp, derp, derp. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, what world, <laughs> what world have I walked into? Um, and I confronted that situation by standing up and yelling the worst nigger joke that I know. Just, like, saying it, like, super loudly. Like, you want, you want jokes like that? Here we go. And everyone saw me, and they looked at me like, oh, that's right. And then they moved to, like, sexist jokes and, I, I don't know, something else, you know. But, like... Yeah, that was my introduction into the world of, of in a lot of ways. And, and it's gotten much better, for sure. But, like, old-time music and blues music also, or old-time world is also very closed off. I'm trying to say it nicely without being too rude, but, like... Yeah. Um, so it's also being in that world. Like, you know, like, it's, it's not rebellious, but it's bold. It's, like, a bold thing to play the banjo and like that's where like the empowerment comes from too not just to be on stage and have the historical thing but to walk into Shakori Hills or Merle Fest I played Merle Fest this year and two black people there me and Rhiannon that was it um, just to walk in there and be like hell yeah black people <laughs> you know um, and it's very important to me um, to do that I guess like when I was talking about my Puerto Rican mom earlier it's like just seeing her do that kind of work, like just do activism work, you know, like making her work part of like a change was inspirational. And so try to make it whenever I play that I'm pushing forward. That was Hubby Jenkins in conversation with Odelia Rubin and also playing his banjo between segments. Find his music at hubbyjenkins.com. Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. I met Dr. Jokey McElroy at a Family Ghosts live show in Dallas back in 2019. At that point, Dr. McElroy had been writing and performing stories about her family for more than three decades. And on a night that featured some fairly theatrical performances from the other storytellers, including yours truly, not to mention a couple musicians and a spoken word poet, Dr. McElroy's performance was a revelation. She sat still on a chair in the middle of the stage and told her story without so much as a hand gesture. And the audience was totally spellbound. Here she is. My grandfather, Jeff Washington, was a hero. And on the ninth day of May, he became a superhero. My grandfather had predicted that there would be an evil happening in Sherman, Texas, due to the fact that black people in Sherman had advanced, had their own business district, they were well-dressed and they were educated and they had professional offices downtown in their own section. And he said, across the land, as blacks, it was Negroes and coloreds then, he said, as colored people advance, whites say they're uppity, 
and they become demonized. Well, my grandfather was prepared for the evil happening. He had Colt 45s on every dresser and table, in every room of his house, and a rifle in standing tall in, each, in a corner, one corner in each room. On Sundays, he put on his gold, put his gold pocket watch in his pocket and strapped his holster around his waist going to church. And my grandmother said, well, Jeff, why do you have to wear the pistol to church? And he said, well, you never know when I might need it. I was born in that house, 10, 12 Natchez, and as a toddler, I had full range of the house. And I never, ever even thought of touching one of those guns. People would come in, they would be so afraid I was gonna toddle over and play with the guns or try to touch it. I knew that the guns weren't toys, and I knew the guns were for our protection. Now, when the evil thing happened, it started with John Hughes, a black man on one of the farms outside Sherman, was accused of raping a white woman. They brought him into Sherman, put him in a cell, and the lynch mob came, pulled him out, tied him to the back of a car, and dragged him up and down the streets of the black community. They ended up across the street from where the blacks had built all their good, nice buildings of businesses, and they had doctors and a dentist and a lawyer's office. They were very proud of their two blocks of Mulberry Street. They hanged John Hughes from a branch of a tree. They mutilated him, and then they set fire to him. They brought their children and they brought lunches. And it was a, like a huge celebration. At the same time that the evil thing was going on, my grandparents at 1012 Natchez had made that place like a fort. My grandfather passed out guns to the men. There were men, children, children, Men, women had come to 1012 Natchez. Some of the blacks ran into the woods and hid, but a lot of them came to my grandfather's place for protection. He handed out the guns to them so that they would patrol the property, and he told them, he said, if any of these murderous cowards step foot on this property, they better be ready to meet their maker. My grandmother and the women cooked and served food and sang hymns. And my grandmother had a collection of quilts, so she put the quilts out on the wraparound porch so the children would have a place to sleep that night. 1012 Natchez was an extraordinary place. It wasn't in the black community. 
It was in a section of Sherman on the northern edge. And there was a ravine on the back of the property that separated my grandfather's property from the wealthy white people of Sherman. My grandfather had bought the property around 1900. And the original owner was a Confederate officer. And my grandfather had heard that the officer had buried a treasure chest of gold on the property. And he was sure that he would find it. The, the officer never came back to get the chest. I remember standing in the kitchen and the, there was a window that faced the back of the property. And I, I would, when they had these expeditions, I would stand there in the window and I would see these shadowy figures moving with their lanterns and their shovels. And they were saying things that I guess meant that a chance or something maybe to give them a hint of where the gold was. In the mornings, I would wake early so I could see that big gold chest of gold. And it never happened. Well, during the summers, well, I, I spent a lot of time at, at, at Sherman. My uh, grandmother and I were very close. My grandmother was a very classy, refined woman, and she was fun-loving. So in the evenings, we would put on our pretty uh, summer dresses and we would walk up the hill to the colored park to, they had a colored band that played concerts. We went to the church socials, the suppers and the activities that the church offered and my grandmother had friends who gave teas and parties and my grandmother loved to entertain and she would have parties. So we really had a good time. I noticed, however, that my grandmother and my grandfather never went any place together. My grandfather went to the Methodist church, my grandmother went to the Baptist church. My grandmother had her friends, my grandfather had his friends. And I also noticed that my grandmother was very happy, loving, kind, generous to everybody but Jeff Washington. <laughs> he never did anything right for her. She even complained that he, good Lord, Jeff, you're standing all stooped over Good land sakes, straighten your back up, stand up straight, stand up like a man. My grandfather never ever responded to her. <laughs> she could rave and rant and he smoked a pipe and he would just sit there sometimes just puffing, 
smoke puffing around in, in the room, and she's continually doing her thing. Well, when I became an adult, my grandmother told me a story, and I think she wanted to tell me the full story, but she just told me the part of the story. She said, she was a young woman, and her mother lived in Bryant, Texas. So she went down to visit her mother, and she had a sister who was pretty wild. Her name was Cordelia. And Cordelia went out one night, came back very late, stumbled and fell on the porch, and was vomiting spiders. She had been poisoned, and she died. My grandmother said, instead of me coming home after the funeral, I decided to stay for weeks with my mother to comfort her. And then she told me, she said, it's a mistake to leave a man alone for any length of time. And I stayed down there in Bryant, Texas just too long. And don't you make the mistake that I made. Don't allow him to have the opportunity to find comfort in some other woman's arms. My grandmother said, to my, mo my mother, I want you to remember this. I should have been back in my home when I was in my mother's home. Well, that's all she told me about that. But then my mother, grandmother had passed, and my grandfather had passed, and my mother was in her 70s, and I was in my 50s, and I had come from Chicago to visit my mother. My mother said that my grandfather had cheated on my grandmother, had a son by this woman, and worst of all, my mother said, this woman was the absolute opposite of my mama. She was the opposite in everything, including looks, that was the devastating thing, she said, that my grandmother couldn't, just could not take. And she decided that she would give my grandfather hell the rest of his life. <laughs> I have come to the conclusion that people make decisions when they are hurt and wounded in grief like my grandmother. She made the decision that she was going to hang on to some happiness, and so she kept a social life, and she, my grandfather, fortunately, was financially secure, and so she had beautiful clothes and beautiful furniture and beautiful linen and beautiful goblets and she never ever had to go to a white woman's house and work. And so I feel that that was the way my grandmother dealt with it. She, she got her happiness from 
her life. My grandfather gave her everything that she could ever want, and she made up her mind that she was going to give him hell until he died, and that's what she did. My grandfather was our hero. My mother loved him dearly. She was devastated when she heard that he had done this deed. And he wasn't 100% uh, good. He was human. Heroes are human. And one thing I can say that Jeff Washington was 100% brave. And he was 100% exciting. Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. Special thanks this week to Odelia Rubin and to Nicole Stewart for putting me in touch with Dr. McElroy. You can learn more about Dr. McElroy at the link in the show notes, where you can also find a link to more music from Hubby Jenkins. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme song is by Luis Guerra. Family Ghosts is made possible thanks to the generosity of the kindred spirits our community of supporters on Patreon. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits hear all of our episodes ad-free and get access to exclusive bonus content. We couldn't make Family Ghosts without the Kindred Spirits. So if you have the means, please consider joining them at patreon.com slash familyghosts. And if you don't have the means, no worries. Thank you for listening. And please consider supporting the show for free by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It will take 30 seconds of your life, and it will make a huge difference in the life of family ghosts. We'll be back in two weeks. Until then, thank you for listening to Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted.